Leviticus. Uh, the thing that we've really stressed is holiness. I think really uh, from chapter 17 to 25, it's uh, holiness expressed in a lot of different ways. Now in Leviticus 23, the chapter was about what, basically? What would be the theme of Leviticus 23? <clears throat> yes, those special holy days. And uh, this is a pretty good uh, description of them, uh, various holy days, concluding with those special days in the fall of the year, uh, in the seventh month. Um, and I think that sort of... Uh, forms a contrast to this first section of chapter 24. There are special days in which there are special activities and special uh, events and sacrifices for God, but there is also the, the daily service, the constant uh, maintenance of the things that God has required. And so I think that's what we're moving to in chapter 24, at least in this first section are these holy things that are associated with the constant, ongoing presence of God in the tabernacle. So would somebody read chapter 24, verses 1 to 9? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the light, to make a lamp burn continually. <coughs> Outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall keep it in order from evening till morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamps in order on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. Then you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. You shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it is most holy to him from the Lord's offering by fire, his portion forever. Alright, so we are dealing really with uh, two areas here. And one through four, what's he commanding? Bring olive oil. For what? Lamp. Yes. Um, they didn't have electric uh, lights. The lamp was fed by this olive oil that he explains to them how to make. And uh, that lampstand was supposed to uh, continue uh, lit how many hours a day? Yeah. It was always supposed to be lit. So that was a matter of their constant uh, provision to maintain that lampstand lit at all times. Now in 5 through 9, he deals with what? Yeah, those the, the bread or the cakes. Um, what, was, what was that for? For the priest to eat, um, did they just make them and eat them? They put them on a table. Where was the table? Yeah, which means it was in the tabernacle. That's right. We usually call that table what? 
Table of showbread. Yeah, that that this is the table of showbread. Except here it might be uh, you know show cake. I don't know, um, but it's a, it's a bread or a cake like thing. Now, that, so so we we see that this section deals with the provisions uh, for the constant uh, activities and worship in the tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle? You have that that first room you come into, the holy place, and then behind the veil you have the holy of holies. Now, in the holy place, in that first room you come into, there were basically three items that we know about in the holy place. Two of them are these two. The lampstand and that table for this bread. Do you remember what the third one is? The altar of incense. Although the altar of incense was more associated with the holy of holies, couldn't actually be physically located in the Holy of Holies, or the priest couldn't have gotten to it to burn the incense, but it was put right in front of the veil so that the incense could penetrate through the veil and God could smell it. So so really you would almost say the altar of incense belonged to the Holy of Holies, even though it's physically located in the holy place. So here we link up the two items that really belong to the holy place, and we're talking about the provision of the ingredients for them. The oil for the lamp, and the bread for that table. Um, let me let me pause here and ask for your comments and questions and observations. There's some things I want us to talk about, but what uh, what things do you notice or, or want to talk about? There's an aspect of this that I think is significant for another story in the Bible. Who was it that was supposed to eat this bread that was put on that table? The priests. The priests. Now, why would I say that's significant? David did. You remember that story? Where do you find that? First Samuel 21. That's exactly right. Yeah. In First Samuel, in First Samuel 21, you remember the situation that David was fleeing from Saul and uh, was with some men, and he stopped by the tabernacle, so to speak, and Ahimelech the priest in 1 Samuel 21.1 says, why are you alone and no one's with you? And David says, well, I'm on a top secret mission for Saul. And then he says in verse 3, now therefore what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, there's no ordinary bread on hand, but there's consecrated bread. You know, and he lets him have the consecrated bread because that was the only bread that was there. Was David a priest? Was he a Levite? So should David have eaten that bread? Now, that's significant because Jesus makes reference to this in Mark chapter 2. And this is a bit more complicated for us sometimes because here's a situation in Mark 2.23 where the disciples were passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath day and picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees in Luke 2, in Mark 2.24 said they're doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered them by saying, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? 
and he and his companions became hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and he also gave it to those who were with him. Now, there's several things about this that we need to think about. The accusation against the disciples was what? They're breaking the law by doing what? Working on the Sabbath, going along and picking some, some, you know, grain on the Sabbath and eating it. Was that actually breaking God's law? No. 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 It was breaking their traditions. It wasn't actually wrong in the sight of God. Nevertheless, Jesus answers, and Jesus' first statement is to mention David and what he did in eating that consecrated bread. Now you wonder why Jesus said that. Here, can I put this here? Do that. Um, you wonder why Jesus said that. Um, was he trying to say that it was okay for David to break the law, so it's okay for us to break the law? That wouldn't seem very likely. For one thing, they weren't breaking the law. And would Jesus have justified his disciples in disobeying the law of God? I don't think so. Um, And in fact, what some people will say, well, Jesus is pointing out that it wasn't really wrong for David to do that because he was hungry. And if you're hungry... The law of mercy takes over the law of God's word, and you can go ahead and break the law. Well, there's some problems with that. Do you see some problems with that? There is no law. Yeah, that becomes kind of subjective, doesn't it? Just, uh, you know, when do I have the right to set aside God's law? And how hungry do you have to be before you can do whatever you want to do? Uh, but there's some other problems with that. What does Jesus say in Mark 2 about what David did? He says it's not lawful. So for us to say it was lawful is to say differently than what Jesus said. Now, here's another thing that I think is worth considering about what Jesus did. Did you look at Jesus' life? Did Jesus believe that it was okay to set aside God's law if you get hungry enough? Why would you say no? He was Absolutely. And if ever you were hungry enough, it should be after you fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and Jesus refused to do something that showed a lack of trust in God, even after a 40-day fast. I don't take it David and his men had been fasting that long. I take it they were just hungry. (coughs) And so if Jesus wouldn't set aside God's law after 40 days, would he be justifying David here? Um, Obviously also from the context in 1 Samuel, David was doing many things that were not lawful. Lying for one, Trusting Goliath's sword for another, defecting to the enemy for another. This was not a good period in David's life. Don't use 1 Samuel 21 and David's life as an example. This is an example where David is starting to falter in his faith before God. So why did Jesus say this? That's the difficult thing about this. We, we look at Mark 2 and we're like, what's Jesus saying? I'll throw out one possibility. I would like to hear anything better than this. This is the best one I know at the moment. 
And that is that Jesus is pointing out the Pharisees' inconsistency. They condemned the disciples, even though actually they didn't break the law. They thought David was a great hero when he did break the law. You know, if they're going to honor David when he did what was not lawful in terms of eating, why are they condemning Jesus' disciples when they do what is okay? That's my best guess as to why Jesus brought that up. That doesn't totally satisfy me. I just don't know anything better. But I don't think that we ought to go in the direction of saying it's okay for David and his men to eat that bread when Leviticus 24 says it wasn't, when Jesus says it wasn't, and when the context of 1 Samuel 21 shows that it wasn't. Um, Comments and questions? Verse 27 of Mark 2 well I think that's the next point Jesus makes when he says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath I think that's ultimately a critique of their legalistic traditions where they had made so many rules and regulations about the Sabbath day they made it like man was a slave to the Sabbath Whereas God's original intention was that the Sabbath be a blessing for man. One day a week where man can be released from the burden of hard work that was the penalty for sin. And so God made the Sabbath as a blessing for man, but all of their legalistic you know, regulations that were just ridiculous had, had turned man into a slave of the Sabbath day. So I think he's saying the true purpose of the Sabbath was a blessing for man, not a burden. Other comments and questions? Alright, come back to Leviticus 24 then. Do you have any other comments or remarks on this section with the preparation of the oil and of the bread slash cakes for that table? Then the bread have been a uh, pretext for the Lord's Supper? Um, yeah, I think there may be some senses in which it's sort of a shadowing, foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper. It might even be more of a foreshadowing of Jesus as the bread of life. That might even be a better one, but I wouldn't deny there could be some foreshadowing of the idea of, of uh, the Lord's Supper as well. Almost everything in the tabernacle, since it was designed by God, are things that are foreshadowings uh, of things in, in Christianity. And, and in one sense, Jesus is our lamp, he is our altar, he is our bread, you know, he's our mercy seat, etc. He's our very tabernacle. So I like to make as many things as possible parallel to Jesus himself. But that doesn't mean there's not even more than one direction on that. Other comments and questions? The things done in 5 through 9 would be done by the priest? Yes, I believe so. He's speaking to Moses to command the sons of Israel about this. Uh, but but I, I, I believe the priests would be uh, the ones involved in that. They're certainly the only ones that could actually take the bread into the holy place. Alan? Uh, what would you have to say about the lamps? 
Well, I suppose that there would always be light. God's light would always be shining in the tabernacle. You could think about Jesus. How often does he, as the light of the world, uh, get extinguished? You know, he's always shining. And we are supposed to allow the light of Christ to shine within us. When are we supposed to turn that off? You know, that's supposed to be a constant thing. So... Bread supposed to be offered, or is it just overdone, or what? Is it an offering by fire? I was going to ask that. Oh, uh, very good cook, right? <laughs> <laughs> <Burnt bread. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> that show toast. <laughs> well, I don't know. I guess I'm not so sure that he's saying that the bread itself would be fired. <laughs> He said, it's most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. Um, so I don't know that that necessarily means that the bread comes in contact with the fire. Is frankincense on it? Mm-hmm. Could they eat that? Could they uh, I guess. Do people eat frankincense? I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that like some kind of uh, oil or perfume or something? Perfume, I think. Who wants to eat perfume? <laughs> Am I not right that the meal offering also had, uh, the grain offering had frankincense on it, didn't it? Yeah. In chapter 2, um, verse, yeah, 2 1, and they ate that. Uh, yeah, you're right. That's a good point. Uh, Mindy's right about that. I don't know. That's that's a good point. I don't know. Mindy's right about what? Yeah, they burned all the frankincense. They didn't Yeah. 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 I've slept since then. She hasn't. That's handy. A little tiring, but. So how long did the, what, how long did the bread stay there? From Sabbath to Sabbath. They, they, and they made new bread? Yes, and they ate the old. They ate still bread? Well. <laughs> <laughs> they would They would take the bread away on the Sabbath day and eat it, and they'd put the new batch. So it's all 14 refers to the trees of the Frankincense. Thank you. Must have been some sort of organic. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. What did you say? Psalm 414 talks about the trees of frankincense. Could be figured enough. Sounds good. Could be. All right. Uh, What else do you want to ask or say about this? We have yeah, it already when it went out. No, still have the beaten oil though, so okay. beaten oil. Um, when we talk about the eating, uh, verse nine. Other questions? Eat it in a holy place. Uh huh. Then the temple, tabernacle, courtyard, or area, perhaps. Where does, it, where does it say that they should eat it every Sabbath? 
Uh, that's a good question. He sets, uh, he, in, in verse 8, every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. So every Sabbath day they put the bread there. Then why wouldn't they just eat it throughout the week? They didn't. Now, I'm not sure if I've got a passage immediately on that, but they, they did eat They They left it there for a week before they replaced it, but I don't know. So I know a passage that will confirm that. I'm not sure that I can tell you that, but I think that is the case. Um, somebody can... We, we can work on that and see if we can uh, sometime come up with a, uh, a statement about that. I'm not sure what other passages actually relate to that. So, so you can take that into advisement, at least. that's I, I believe that's the case, but, but I'm not sure what... That might be the almost the idea you'd have behind this passage, but it doesn't say it just in so so, so many words. Um, now, something you might consider about that would be Exodus twenty-five thirty: "You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times." They had to have the bread there all the time, so that might be the implication of the bread there all the time. They put it there every Sabbath. But they couldn't take it away from there until they put more bread there. That's excellent. 25, 30. That might be something that would help. Alright. Other comments and questions? Alright. We uh, move from this to a really an event that disrespects the holiness of God. I think that's really what we're looking at here. I don't know exactly how to section this off. I mean, it seems to me like we're kind of moving to another point here, even though we're sort of between the whole annual holy days, the daily holy things, and the, uh, you know, every once in a while holy uh, times of chapter 25. And kind of in the middle of this, we sort of have a little historical section that shows what happens when you don't respect God's holy name. So I'm not sure about the, uh, the placement of this at this point, although some have suggested that it kind of is a similar thing, say, to Leviticus 10 with Nadab and Abihu, how they disrespected the holy service of God. We've been thinking about uh, the holiness of God. It's appropriate to interject a story that would show us what happens when you don't give God proper respect. So maybe it's something like that. Um, but it's a pretty uh, pretty interesting case. Why don't we go ahead and look at the, the case itself uh, in 10 to 12. The son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, and the son of the Israelite woman and the man of Israel strove together in the camp. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed, and they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shulomith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody until the will of Yahweh should be declared to them. So, we've got a situation here. What had happened? The woman had cursed God. Alright, there was a fight. No, there was a fight between these two people. Now the two people were who? The woman's son and an Egyptian. No. The woman's son and an Israelite. Israelite. 
Now the woman's son, who what was he? He was he was mixed. He had an Israelite mother, an Egyptian father. We don't know his name. His mother's name was Shelomith. But whatever his name, I don't know. But so he's a half Israelite, half Egyptian man that fights with an Israelite man in the camp. And this, uh, I don't know what we want to call him, uh, racially mixed man did what? He cursed God. Uh, Which certainly would be an affront to God's holiness. Uh, That that wasn't right to to revile, to blaspheme the name of God. And so when the bystanders heard that and they realized the outrage of that, the serious infraction that was, what did they do with the man? They brought him to Moses. He's the leader. He's the one receiving revelations from God. And so what does Moses lead them to do? Put him in custody until they know what God wants them to do. Isn't that a good thing? What does that show you about Moses and these people? Before they act. That's always what we need to do. Stop and listen to God's revelation before we just go off and think, well, I'll do this, or I'll do that, or I'll do whatever. They want to know what God's will is about this, and so they put him in custody until they find out. There are really maybe two questions here that they wouldn't have necessarily known the answer to and how to deal with this. Can you think of what those two questions would be that they would need to find out the answer to? Their punishment or when someone cursed God. That's one thing. What are you supposed to do in this case? What's the punishment for blaspheming God? And a second question might be... Did you really do it? That could be in his case, although there's witnesses. Yeah. What do you do with a a man of mixed parentage? Uh, Does the same law apply to him or uh, not? Or is there a special situation for him? So that might be a secondary question mark in this particular case. There are other times... What was the second question? Well, he's half foreigner. Does the law apply? Does the law apply or how does the law apply in that case? There are other times when Moses would wait for additional revelation before acting. For example, in Numbers 9, there were some people who were unclean and so they couldn't observe the Passover at the prescribed time. They came to Moses and wanted to know what to do. And Moses waited for a revelation from God before he told them what they ought to do. And then, in Numbers 15, starting in verse 32, there was a man who was, gather, was gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And they put him into custody and waited for God to tell them what they were supposed to do in that particular case. That's in Numbers 15, verses 32 to 36. And then there's a third time that that happened in Numbers 27, in connection with the inheritance being passed down through uh, daughters. So those are three other times in Numbers, Numbers 9, Numbers 15, Numbers 27, where there's a similar procedure in the sense that you've got a situation without Moses yet knowing what God's will is, and instead of just inventing an idea or using his common sense or whatever, he delays to do anything until God reveals to him what should be done. 
we so often are ready to just go off on our own and say, well, I, you know, I think this would be good. Or, you know, I've heard that that might work. But what we really need to do is to seek God's will. Wait and listen to the Lord's revelation before we act. You know, our judgment about it, our ideas are not, they're inferior. If we don't have a clear statement of God, we just need to be quiet until we get one, until we find one in our case. So this is, I think, very uh, appropriate to wait for God's answer before acting. What was the third chapter? 27. Alright. Comments and questions through verse 12. One time in Joshua when they made that deal with the Gibeonites that um, you know, one time they didn't consult God they got in trouble well, from their standpoint it, it was a pretty reasonable choice you know, these far off travelers you know, how are they going to do us yeah and that's our problem because sometimes it seems so reasonable to us you know it just seems like well the sure that God you know this is what seems right this is what I think surely God would agree <laughs> and that wow we get into so much trouble when we presume to know God's will without actually hearing what he says now, that's an excellent contrast other comments Um, yeah, uh, and just various uh, statements to, to reverence and revere God and to fear God and so forth. Um, we definitely need to keep the name of God holy. Um, so, I mean, I think there'd be several principles that, that they would have understood, you know, that would have led them to knowing this was wrong. But, but I don't think they knew what, you know, what the punishment was for it. Does he follow up most of those later with punishments? Most of what later? Oh, boy, that's a good question. Um, several of them, yes. I don't know. That's what I was start thinking. I'm not sure if there is one for that. Um, but pretty much the rest of them, I think, yes. In some passage or other, in the Pentateuch, you've got, you know, a statement about the punishment. That's a good question. Other comments and questions? All right, 13 to 16. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who is cursed outside the camp, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. All right. So... God speaks to Moses and tells him to 
bring this one who cursed outside the camp, and then what were they supposed to do? Stone him after doing what? The ones who heard him to lay their hands on his head, and then there to stone him. Because the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Um, It's interesting that he follows this procedure. I'm wondering about the idea of the witnesses putting their hands on his head. I'm not sure if I know what that means, but it's almost like they were contaminated by hearing this. And they're sort of putting the guilt back on him. You know, and, and this is an outrage. And so they put their hands on his head, and then they stone him. Does that seem maybe a little too harsh? Now when you're blaspheming the name of the only living God. I think that's exactly right. Um, You know, when we think that God's laws about this are too harsh, maybe we ought to stop and reflect on the natural laws of God. You know, they can be pretty harsh too. Like the law of gravity? No? Happened to step out of a, you know, rather high building or something that way? Uh, you know, that's pretty harsh and not very forgiving. We understand there are serious penalties in the physical world if you disrespect the laws God gave. Why would we think that you could, you know, blaspheme verbally the name of God, and there not be any penalties in the spiritual world. We are basically living in God's world as his guests, and we don't have the right to defy him. And, you know, we would even, many countries would have laws that would mandate the death penalty for treason, for people who would act against the welfare of the country. How much more someone who blasphemes the holy name of the sovereign God. So I think this is an appropriate penalty. And uh, comments and questions. I think that God, I think that God has the right to pretty much have people stone us or kill us any time because of all the sins that we've done. And just, I mean, I think He definitely deserves that because I mean, cursing somebody that you wouldn't even be alive if it weren't for them. Amen. Good point. Other thoughts? I think you can see how God's laws are universal. Here. Like I, I think a lot of people nowadays think that you know, the laws here <coughs> stop at America's borders. That God's laws apply to all people, whether they're Christians or not, or Hebrews or not. Good point. You definitely see that here. We're going to see that even more in the next section. This is kind of 16. is kind of a transition verse. But uh, God is not just a national God. Not even in the Old Testament. Though the other gods usually were. But Israel's God was an international God. He made the whole world. He's in control of all of it. His laws apply. Now he may have had specific laws or commands to specific people, but he has general laws that are applicable to everybody. And uh, he says, it's uh, the alien as well as the native. When he blasphemes, the name shall be put to death. Other comments? 
the hands on the head that reminded me of the sacrifices of the animals. Yes. But I guess that too, like you said, has the image of passing the guilt on to this animal. I think it does. And then you read the passage and say that the people would see these punishments and, and fear the Lord and they would not sin and not do this anymore. If you were one of the witnesses and you were one of the people here that had to be part of that, I mean, you, you would you'd be struck with fear. And I would think so. You wouldn't want to do it, I don't think. It would be a deterrent to that, wouldn't it? Even more deterrent today. Uh, I mean, shoot. If uh, there was this kind of swift, public, and uh, painful punishment for certain things, it might change a lot. Other comments? Seventeen to twenty-three. gives the punishment for blasphemy, but a number of other uh, punishments that God wants. What other punishments does he tell us about here? You kill someone, you're going to be killed. Alright. Yeah, capital punishment for the murderer. What else? Yeah. Basically, whatever you do to somebody, you get the equivalent thing done back to you. You know, as he says, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The idea that you do it to them, it's done back to you. And also... You're responsible for killing somebody's animal, you need to replace it. Yes. Kill somebody's animal, you give them an animal. Say equivalent animal. Do you see a pattern in these punishments? Exactly. I think that's exactly what it is. I mean, this is setting a precise equivalent penalty for each offense. It's not you knock a guy's tooth out and you get strangled by your, you know, neck or whatever, you know, or or or, or you kill somebody's animal and you you have some physical punishment come to your body. No, it's it's the it's the equivalent penalty. What you did, you received back to you. In some ways, this would have limited the punishment. You know how some people are. They can get pretty vengeful. And I, you could imagine somebody getting their animal took and then going out with a shotgun to kill the one who took it. Well, probably not a shotgun back here, but you get the idea. Bow and arrow. Uh, so... That wouldn't be appropriate. Shouldn't take somebody's animal. But the, the right penalty for that is not 
you know, for him to be put to death, but for him to have to give an equivalent animal. So God is setting very strict and stern and firm punishments, but not exaggerated punishments. Justice is the principle. Comments. Kind of remind me of the Golden you of? The Golden Yes. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, uh, help me with Exodus 22 with this, where a man steals it and then has to repay more than he took. How does that fit with this? Well, I think here, really, it's probably not so much stealing as killing the animal. Yeah, but killing would almost seem more severe in Exodus 22. It's like the guy gets his ammo back plus four more. <laughs> killing would almost seem worse if he's punished less. Maybe it isn't worse. I mean, obviously, it's more severe to the animal, but... <laughs> but if you steal it, what are you what are you trying to do? You harm the owner. Yeah, and you well, even if you kill it, you're harming the owner. And you're helping yourself. Yeah, you're trying to use that animal for your own personal gain. If you kill it, I don't know why would you kill an animal. I was I wasn't thinking so much about eating it. If you killed it to eat it, maybe it would be a similar thing. Yeah. What if you got angry? Yeah, exactly. What if you got angry with that and barked all night, or uh, you know, <laughs> or you know, it ran out of the road in front of your chariot, or you know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking that the killing of the animal may not have been so much for your own personal use of the animal as some other reason, so you just pay him back an animal. But if you actually take the animal, because you're wanting it for your own personal gain, you'd have to get more. I may be wrong. That's just what comes to my mind. Well, the way that it's fit in there with the other acts of injuring someone else, you know, breaking their leg or knocking out their tooth or killing their animal or killing the person, it's not the same type of... Those are all similar rather than stealing from him to eat it or some other reason. It was like I was mad at the guy and, you know, broke his leg and then I killed his animal. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. That's helpful. Yeah. It may be an act of revenge against the man, even, to kill his animal. I think about David's reaction to Nathan's story about the man that stole the poor man's sheep. You know, he said that man deserves to die. But it's kind of like, that's, that's really, really bad, but he'll have to pay him back for forward. Yeah. I think they would really clear our court system if this was the penalty today rather than six trillion dollars in cash for, you know, getting my eye put out. Say, so you go through all that, okay, you win, go poke the other guy's eye out, that's it. <laughs> you know? But. I keep down frivolous lawsuits. Yes, wouldn't it? Might work Debbie out of a job, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, injuries and, and, and wrongs done are bad, but that does not give the injured victim the right to do an injustice to the person who committed the crime. I mean, you know, we, we get this feeling that, you know, the victim deserves to exact any penalty they want from the one who injured them. That's not true. That's not justice. 
And, uh, you know, the Bible's very balanced about those things. You really see principles of justice here. And it, we have to think those through to really have a, an understanding of what is just and right. Well, when you have an accelerated attitude of vengeance, you know, it's just, it's just a bad attitude overall, but when you have things like this that promote, you know, equal justice, you know, perhaps these things would even encourage mercy. I would wonder if someone would, you know, like you said, you got your eye poked out, and the punishment is, well, the other guy gets his eye poked out. You know, I'm not so sure that I want some other guy getting his eye poked out just because I got mine poked out. You know, maybe, maybe you'd be like, let him go, you know, forget about it. I don't know. I don't know if we have any. Do we have, my other question was, do we have any examples or any other um detailed description on how some of those fracture for a fracture. How was that carried out? I mean did they actually just Same limb. Go I mean they just go beat up the guy or Yeah, I don't know that we have an example on that. Uh but I'm not sure that this really is something that mercy should have been applied to. Certainly not with the guy who blasphemed the name. Uh, you know, he should have been killed. But I, I mean, I think perhaps this is the this is the right thing that the government should have seen to was carried out, whether the victim wants it done or not. Justice demands it be done. I may be wrong about that, but that's my initial reaction. Well, there would be cases where the victim wouldn't have to take it before the judges necessarily. But perhaps. Now, there's something else I like in this, as you might have expected. Um, look at the end of verse 16. His point is, same law, alien or native. Look at verse 22. His point is, same standard, stranger or native. Alright, look at 17. Killing a man. Look at 21b, killing a man. Look at 18, killing an animal. Look at 21a, killing an animal. Look at 19a, or 19 really, you know, injuring your neighbor, and 20, injuring your neighbor, and the point in the middle, as he has done, so it should be done to him. So, you got the alien and the native taking a man's life, taking an animal's life, whatever he did should be done to him, taking an animal's life, taking a man's life, resident, or, you know, native versus the, the alien. It's a chaosm, yeah. A, B, C, D, B, C, B, A. I think that's a pretty clear one. I mean, I don't know how you're going to deny that one. <laughs> you're challenging it. I like your chaos. Yeah, well, nobody else does, but, uh, I, I mean... And some of these, it's just like so obvious that you you can't say that there wasn't some design to that one. Say it again, Jim. All right. The, the alien as well as the native, that's the A. The B is killing a man. The C is killing an animal. And the D is this thing in 19 and 20. That, you know, maybe 19 is D and 20 is a D whatever he did shall be done to him 
Um, you might even make that a DED. I don't know. I'm not really concerned about that. Um, and then we're back to the C, killing an animal, verse 21. Then the B, killing a man, 21B. And then in 22, stranger as well as the native. So what was B again? Uh, whatever he did be done, will be done to him. Whatever he did will be done to him. What it, your hearing's okay now. Whatever he did will be done to him. Do what now, Logan? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that one's there. Some of mine stretch it a little bit, but not nearly as much as all the commentators I read after. If I gave you all the chiasms they give, you know, they think the Bible can't be written in anything other than chiasm. So this starts in one. It starts in 16 B. Do I detect a note or two of sarcasm? <laughs> That's a dangerous combination. Now then, look at a another comparison. This is not a chiasm or anything, but I think it is interesting in, in another way. You look at what God said. Look at 13. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, look at 23. Moses spoke to the sons of Israel. Now what did God say? Well God said to bring the one who is cursed outside the camp and what did they do in 23? They brought the one who had cursed outside the camp. What does God say to do with him? All the congregation stoned him. What did they do in 23? They stoned him. You know, and they did just what God commanded. You just see that line by line almost. God said it, and they do it. Point by point, they do exactly what God said for them to do. Which is, which is the right thing. That's, that's what needs to be done. God gives the message, he gives the revelation, and they carry it out line by line, point by point. Alright. Other comments and thoughts on Leviticus 24? It's interesting to see with 16, at the end of it, said whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall die. I can't help but think of David and Goliath, where Goliath Mount rightly said, he blasphemed the name of the Lord. Um, verse. Sorry. In verse uh, 20 something, um, where he comes out and blasphemes the armies of the living God, blasphemes the Lord, um, and then he is literally stoned, I guess. <laughs> Only with one stone. But. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, good point. Yes. I agree. For Samuel 17. I got a couple things to say. Good. First off, do you think um, that using words in vain would kind of go with that too? Well, that's a good question. Ah, we're not to take the Lord's name in vain. That's for sure, and that's an outrage. I don't know that that's what this man did. I take it that he actually issued some sort of a curse against God. 
so I'm not sure that we should say this would include taking God's name in vain. Um, somebody have a statement about that? I mean, there certainly needs to be some strong things said about taking God's name in vain. We are very inconsistent, I think, on that point. Um, we are horrified, in general, by gutter language, and appropriately so. You know, the four-letter words and things that are just gross and crass and, you know, disrespectful. Um, and I think God's people should purify their speech from, you know, outrageous things. But we would tend, perhaps, not to be as hurt by somebody who just uses the name of the Lord as kind of a, you know, word to express strong emotion. You know, I mean, you know, someone who just says, you know, the name of the Lord. You know, to to emphasize their statement. You know, prefacing a strong statement with the word God or, or Jesus or something like that. We might not feel like that was that bad. To me, that's much worse. That That is more outrageous. It's bad to use, you know, just trashy words. But it's even worse to use God's name simply as a punctuation mark for emotion. Because that's so disrespectful to the Lord. Now, let's clean up our language in general, but by all means, we should respect God's name. The principles here would lead us to respect God's name. I'm not sure that taking God's name in vain would fit what this man did. That's, that'd be my position. I think you were kind of substituting it when you said yeah, you're right. It is bad. And we need to be very careful about those kinds of things because we need to hold God in the highest respect, in the highest reverence. He deserves that. And to, to take his name and just you know, throw it away like that, it's just disrespectful. It dis dishonors the great God. Also, I kind of thought about this when, when like, we talked about taking the, like, if you were to take an animal from another man, I mean, even if you were to eat it, like, if that's why you took it, I think that's, uh, that's stealing, number one. And number two, I don't think you, I mean, we talked earlier about how people would fast and stuff for 40 days, and you're going to steal over, I mean, a little bit of hunger when, I mean, this is stuff in God's scripture that says do not do it. And we just kind of don't even think about it. We think about ourselves too much and we don't care about the Lord as much as we need to. Good point. Other comments and questions? Uh, I think it's interesting how they put the member out that had sinned. They did everything immediately with what it said to take care of what, what had sinned in their whole congregation. That's Prompt obedience. I've always wondered how would that work? How would the whole congregation still in one room? It's a really big congregation. How would they all partake in this study? Oh, uh, 
that's a good question. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah, I guess, you know. That, if that guy wasn't killed, he'd at least be buried. <laughs> What do you say? Oh, I got it. I didn't mean for that to be a pun. I'm just glad they stoned him with stones. What else would you stone him with? Maybe we don't want to know. <laughs> Why else would they call it stoning? <laughs> Perhaps that just makes it more graphic and more vivid. Here's a question. Did they, what, how big were the songs they stoned them with? I don't know. Other thoughts? I think this is um, different. This isn't the same as like um, giving us the right to have revenge for someone who wronged us. This is more like justice kind of thing, not like the silver rule that Jesus talked about, you know, doing to others the same way that they do to you. Like if someone steps on my toe, I go step on their toe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just, it's not fair if you have shoes and they don't. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, Ryan. I think this is more in the area of the the justice that ought to be done in the society not a personal revenge thing. I agree with that. Other thoughts? <laughs> Wouldn't that one place, Roman somewhere, um, 12, say negate this now for us? This idea of eye for an eye? I don't think so. Uh, because I don't think this was a personal revenge thing anyway. I think this was a um, essentially a, a, a justice, a judicial thing. Romans 12, you know, tells us not to take our own revenge, but to leave room for the vengeance of God. And then in the very next verses, the first part of chapter 13, we learn that the governor, the government, he is an avenger, a minister of God to bring wrath on the one who practices evil. So I'm not sure there's any difference. I don't think this was just a personal revenge thing in Exodus, in uh, Leviticus. And so I think this is more a judicial thing. And that judicially, God uses the government as one of his means of punishing the evildoer. So I'm not really sure there's that much difference. I mean, the question would be more, is this something somebody was just supposed to take in their own hands and do as a matter of revenge, or was this part of whatever judicial process they had? And I'm more inclined to think that this was to be a solemn, serious act of justice, not an act of personal peeve. All right, other comments and questions? <laughs> yeah, irritation. Striper. Beef. That's good beef. Yeah. 
right, any other uh, snide remarks? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> oh, I forget, Ray. Really. Have some homeschooled people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, L chapter 25, verses 1 to 7. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I have given you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your fields, and six years you shall prune your vineyards and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath, a Sabbath of solemn rest, or a Sabbath of, to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard, but grows of its own accord of your harvest. You shall not reap, not, nor gather the grapes of the untaxed. For it is a year of rest for the land, and the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female servants, your man <coughs> and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all of its process produce. Okay, uh, we're moving into another aspect of the calendar, and this is uh, special years. We've had special days and every day, and now we've got special years. And the year here is is a, a special year where the land keeps a rest, a Sabbath. How often was that supposed to occur? Seventh. Every seventh year. <laughs> So what happens on the seventh year? How is it different? You don't plant and you don't harvest. You let the land have a year off. A year's break. It's a, you know, we have the weekly Sabbath every seventh day. Now this is the yearly Sabbath every seventh year. Um, what do you think about that? that include the kids getting off school? Uh, not that I know of. But then again, I'm not sure they had school back then, so. Like it'd be hard to survive every year. Yeah. What do you do for food during that seventh year? So yeah, but but how long is your food from the sixth year going to have to last you? You could you could do what uh, Joseph commanded the Pharaoh to do and they were going to have the famine, you just save up steadily for six years, keep putting back and that way you could have enough for the seventh year. And I think it's like with the data the Lord gave, he gave more on the sixth day so that on the seventh day they would have to get it. And I can see that happening. The Lord would give double harvest in the sixth year and the seventh day would keep it. Yes. Yes, exactly. I think that's precisely the principle. It took faith, and, but God would give them more on the sixth year to last them for the two years. Well, that's what it amounts to. The harvest has to last you for one year anyway. has to last you until the next harvest. Well, with the Sabbath year, it has to last you two years. But God would provide for them an adequate amount to last for the two years. I think uh, we'll see that a little later on with the Jubilee year that we'll talk about. Um, 
So they will be provided for. However, there are some tests in this that would be difficult. Let's say God will provide enough on that sixth year to last you for two years, but what if on that eighth year, the first year you start back planting, it's a bad year, and you don't hardly get any crops out of that, then you're in trouble. That's the thing. It took trust and faith on their part to believe that they could trust the Lord not to plant on the seventh year. I'll tell you another thing it takes. It takes less of a greedy, materialistic mentality. Because you know how we are. It doesn't make any difference. If God gave us enough on the sixth year to tide us over on the seventh year, then we'll sell what we make on the seventh year and we'll go buy a Lamborghini or something. You know, we want to get as much as we possibly can. Where's the limit? When do we say, well, I've already got enough. I don't need any more. I don't want any more. We always want more. So really this is a test of whether or not they're willing to do what God says or whether or not they're going to let their their greed and their desire for material possessions take over. Uh, This would have been a real tough thing to do. But it's what God asked. By the way, what do they call this year in some of the translations of what year? Sabbatical year. You know we use the word sabbatical? What's a sabbatical? Yeah, it's time off from a job, often from an educational job. You know, college professors get sabbaticals sometimes. And they get like a semester or a year off to do other things. Theoretically, yeah. What does it say then? Eat the produce of the Sabbath products of the land for food. Yes, that was another provision from the Lord that they could eat what just grew up. That was, and and they and everybody else was traveling through could eat the stuff that just kind of grows up. They couldn't harvest. They couldn't harvest it. Couldn't harvest or sow. Neither one. What is harvesting would be? Harvesting would, yeah, it would be. I guess, but you'd go eat it. And also harvesting would be like the planting that you've done taking from that, like the grapes and the olives and so forth. But just volunteer stuff that grows up, you can you can take from it and eat it. I think we kind of need to be like that today because we can just put our faith in God and trust in Him and not worry about tomorrow, just worry about today and what's going to happen what the Lord take care of. Amen. So you let the animals and everything in the corn crop fields all year and, and try to keep them out next year. <laughs> yep. That'll be a little difficult. I always wondered if they ever did this. Well, uh, that's anticipating chapter 26. We have an idea they didn't very much right. because when God kicked them out of the land, Uh, When he threatens to do that in chapter 26, it's so the land can keep its Sabbaths that they haven't given it. You know, they've got an accumulate. That land has some overdue rest time. Since they're not going to give it voluntarily, God will just send them away and the land will have its rest. And uh, that's also picked up on in the very end of 2 Chronicles. So I take it that they had not been very faithful in observing this. 
you could you could imagine that knowing them. I mean, they had a hard time observing even the Sabbath day at times because they were wishing it'd be over so they could go back to cheating cheating people and making you know exorbitant profits and all that. Uh, Amos chapter eight, for example. You can see how the natural laws of the land of, of God's creation, you know, kind of in and of themselves possess the the curse that would come from disobeying this. I mean, if you did not give the land its rest, the land is going to be used up and it's going to become worthless because you overworked the land. And, you know, obviously God controls that, but yet he controls it through his natural laws that he's designed. So if you go against what he said, you know, you're going you're gonna to receive the curse. Through the natural law. I have a question. Do you think that, like, somewhere, like, in a different part of the like, country, I guess, um, like, somebody else could have, like, I mean, I'm sure somebody else could have a family and other people would be gone, get, like, across and everything, but, I mean, I know God creates all that and has say in that and what happens. But do you think that, like, you think, what do you think it is that, do you think it would count, like, cursing God, cursing God or something? Do you think that would take part in the punishment? Do you think he would punish you? I mean, obviously, there'd be some, but, like, say it's a sin or something else, like, that you do, um, besides having anything to do with the crops, do you think he would punish you? Well, we'll see in the next chapter that that is one of the punishments God would bring drought and famine for their disobedience to the covenant. So yeah, God definitely does punish them for for their sins. Other comments and questions? It says that the Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai this all being part of the same I mean it's all given at the same time with the law I believe this come is come back to that several yes. times and it like we jump around or it almost seems as we're reading it but so he's telling the people something and then all of a sudden they go back as well the Lord told Moses and outside actually that's a characteristic of uh, this section starting in chapter 17 there's a lot of this the Lord spoke to Moses. Now, not usually mentioning Sinai, but the first verse of 17, first verse of 18, first verse of 19, of 20, uh, 21, 22, 22, 17, 23. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of this the Lord spoke to Moses. This, just, this one just adds he's still at Mount Sinai when he does. So I'm assuming all of them are the same. I think so. Yeah, I think this is all revelation at Mount Sinai. When he was up on the mountain, or just at that time? I'm not sure. Well, then we have this sort of little uh, interlude, I guess, where it talks about the person who cursed God. Like, it was like sort of something that was happening then. I mean, I know. It's almost an application of the laws as, as it's being translated or related to the rest of the people. Here's the laws that Moses, and here's what happened, and here's an example of this law, and here's some more laws that the Lord gave Moses, and here's an example, and then... Yeah, I'm not sure it's chronological. Right. <laughs> good, good point, Harry. Other comments and questions? 
I think I'm inclined to go ahead. Why don't we take a short break here? I need to do that every once in a while. And before we get into the Jubilee year, uh, yes, because um, we'll take a break for maybe like 10 minutes or something like that.